0: Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser.
1: Do you know what a land-grant university is? I'll be honest, I wasn't really sure until I had this conversation with Steve Gavazzi, a professor at The Ohio State University and the co-author of the book, Land-Grant Universities for the Future, Higher Education for the Public Good. In the book and in this interview, Steve explains how land-grant universities have diverged from their original mission of being a space for accessible and practical education for the working class, And he explains how they might find their way back from ditching the idea of national rankings to coming up with a reward system for excellence. Steve says there are so many ways to make the education system more available to those it may have left behind. Hear all of that and more in this episode. Well, Steve, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for inviting me into this conversation.
1: Yeah. Uh, Why don't we jump off by first give us an introduction to you. Give us your name, your title, what you're working on, and um, the book that you just recently put out.
2: Okay. Well, my name is Steve Gavazzi, and I'm a professor at The Ohio State University in the College of Education and Human Ecology. And I've been here at Ohio State for 28 years, and I've just written a book with West Virginia University President E. Gordon Gee entitled Land-Grant Universities for the Future, Higher Education for the Public Good.
1: So I'd like to jump right into that, if we can. Tell me a little bit about land-grant universities. I know they date back to like the 1800s. What, what is a land-grant university? What were the original missions? What do you know about them? What can you tell us about them, I guess?
2: So that's an excellent starting point. The land-grant universities are America's first public universities, and they actually were founded in 1862 through what was known as the Morrill Land-Grant Act, which was literally the federal government granting land to each state in order to meet their localized needs for their communities uh, educationally. Prior to this, the only way, or the, almost the only way, that you could go to college was if you were white, if you were wealthy, and primarily if you lived in an urban area. Oh, yes, and you were also male. So the 1862 Moral Land Grant Act, in many ways, was the federal government's response to the understanding that people who did not fit that description needed to get a higher education opportunity in order to advance America's interests. So in 1862, in the middle of the Civil War, Justin Morrill uh, had actually for the third time tried to pass this Land Grant Act, and it was finally passed in 1862. The focus then obviously was on access and affordability. So in large part, you don't have to take my word for it. There's a direct quote from the Moral Act itself that, in talking about itself, said that this act was passed in order to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes in the several pursuits and professions in life. And so that emphasis on the industrial classes, today what we would call the working class, was really what the act was designed to do. Note, however, that they also talked about this being a practical education. At the outset, the land grants were primarily focused on things like agriculture, engineering, which at that time uh, we called the mechanical arts, and also military science because we were in the middle of a war. In 1890, the federal government realized that they had not done everything that they really needed to do to fund those original universities. And also at that time, the separate but equal status of African Americans was also a pressing issue. And so in 1890, a second Morrill Land Grant Act was passed, which provided funding to begin what eventually became the historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs as we know. So that then uh, was updated again in 1994 through a third land grant act, and that was to provide funds to begin or, in many cases, to further develop institutions that were aimed at providing access for Native American students. So obviously a long time in coming Mm -hmm. before we actually funded all of those.
1: And so what is the mission today? Because obviously we're not living in the 1860s anymore. So I assume that the mission has kind of changed a little bit over time. What what would you say the mission of a land-grant university is today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so first we have to realize that those land-grant acts primarily created and then augmented the land-grant mission of teaching Mm -hmm. and specifically providing an education for America's working-class communities that was both accessible and affordable. What happened, though, is then in 1887, there was a second act passed. It was actually named after a representative, Hatch, called the, the Hatch Act, in which federal monies were given to states to support research on issues that were facing the communities in each state. And so this Hatch Act, which originally was designated only for agricultural-related research, expanded uh, over time to focus on all sciences. So that really created the second component of the land-grant mission, which was research. So we see how the land-grant universities were being driven by these federal acts. But that wasn't the last act. The last act was in in 1914, which was known as the Smith-Lever Act which established what is now known as Cooperative Extension Services. And that mission was then to disseminate research findings to farms, to families, and to communities. So that really created that third component of the land-grant mission, which historically has been called service, but these days is, is more typically called outreach and engagement.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, give me an example. When you say a land-grant university, that's just like Ohio State University. That's a lot of public universities, correct? That's correct. Okay. Now tell me a little bit about the relationship that land grant institutions have both with students, with the community, how are the how are land grant universities responsible for accommodating them? You obviously you want a like you said a trained workforce and and an education given to a different class, but how is that being brought out?
2: Well, so Another excellent question, and that points to the main issue at hand that we took up in the book, Mm -hmm. which was, have these land-grant universities, and other public universities for that matter, have they forgotten their mission, Uh, especially in terms of meeting the needs of communities? And that's what we really sought to do in the study that sits underneath this book. So what happened was, both Gordon Gee, as the president of West Virginia University, and Michael Drake, who's the president here at The Ohio State University, co-wrote a letter to all of the presidents and chancellors of all of these land grants, asking them to agree to participate in an interview. And immediately, 27 of those presidents and chancellors stepped up and said, yes, we very much would like to participate in this. And so, I then sat down with these 27 presidents and chancellors and asked them four main questions about the role of the land-grant university, and specifically in terms of meeting the specific needs of their communities. And so really, this was a SWOT analysis. This was asking them questions about strengths and weaknesses in the present institutions, but also opportunities and threats in the future that they could forecast that uh, they would be facing. And what, what we found was that there was this overall evidence of some conflicting priorities. Uh, if you will, another way of talking about it would be a dynamic tension that existed. And there were really seven of these themes. And I'll very quickly go through them, and then we can talk about any of them. The first one, and most importantly to all of these presidents, was recognizing that they had continued to suffer from reduced funding from their historical sources, including the states but they recognized that there was a dynamic tension with the need to be more efficient with the money that they have been given. So that was the first one. The second, we've mentioned this already about research. So there's this dynamic between being excellent at research, but also being excellent at teaching and also being excellent in terms of your outreach and engagement activities. And then the third theme was really another component of the research mission, which is looking at the difference between basic or what you might call bench science versus more applied or translational research. The next theme that we covered in the book talked about the pursuit of national rankings versus what happens when a university aims more to be accessible and affordable to its population. We can talk about that in more detail if you'd like. Also the rural versus urban distinction, historically land grants, most of whom by the way, are in fact geographically located in rural areas, uh, have been trying to step up and create more modern and more urbanized efforts as well. And so there's a dynamic tension there. Land grant and other public universities want to be more international in scope. More and more of the students that are coming to land grants are also international But that also sits as a dynamic tension with more of what we would call a closer-to-home impact. In other words, if the state is paying for all of these efforts, what are they getting in return? How is it impacting the state and its citizens in a positive way? And then the last piece, and it's uh, in many ways the burr in the saddle of, uh, I think, everyone in higher education right now, which is looking at the value of a higher education degree, versus the alternative not pursuing a degree. And what we're finding in modern America right now is that that's a real big debate that there are a lot more people who are saying maybe going to college isn't valuable and maybe everyone shouldn't go to college. And so that ends up becoming the the seventh theme which in some ways is an encapsulation of those other six.
1: And so those are all different themes that you heard from these 27 pre- presidents and chancellors that you talked to. Correct. And so what were some of the strategies that they were using to address them?
2: The rub is, in many ways, that many of these universities are, in fact, meeting the needs of the communities, but they're not doing so in a way in which the word is getting out. The, there, there seems to be a lack of a narrative in terms of how land-grant universities and, other, again, other publics are actually creating positive impacts on the communities that they face. So I think that's one of the things that, that came out very clearly was that these land-grant presidents and chancellors struggled to find a way to tell that story in a compelling way.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that what you were hoping to do with your book?
2: Well, in part, uh, yes. But the, But the other thing, too, uh, is that we We were not satisfied with just listening to these presidents and chancellors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was clear to us that leadership plays a a really important role in what a university does. Uh, That's not in question. But the question was, how in sync are these presidents and chancellors with what their constituents, their stakeholders want from them? And so we went out and we interviewed 35 additional what we might call thought leaders who were known to be experts in these higher education issues. So we talked with faculty members, for for one, who study these kinds of things. But we also went out and we talked to elected officials, to state lawmakers, to governors. We talked to leaders who were involved in accrediting bodies of these institutions of higher education. We talked to think tank affiliates. We talked to boards of trustees members and other governing board representatives. And what we found was that outside of the university, there's a really clear message for creating a a more positive impact in contemporary America. And that is to say that those dynamic tensions that we just got done talking about are not so much of a tension to the general public. Mm -hmm. What we see, for instance, is there's a demand for greater efficiency. In other words, I think that there's a sentiment among people that before you ask for more money, show us that you're being more efficient with the money that you actually have. The research piece as another example. There was a study that was done not too long ago that asked citizens that, uh, to take a dollar bill. And if you had that dollar bill and you were going to give it to higher education, how much of that dollar would go to teaching, how much of that dollar would go to research, and how much of that dollar would go to engagement with the community? And not surprisingly, I, I imagine, to most people listening to this, is that the vast majority of that dollar went to teaching, and the rest of the dollar went to the community, and nothing went to research. And so the message, again, is from the general public that if you're doing research, hey, you know, do that on your own time. Make that something that, you, that perhaps is, is helpful to you and perhaps to society, but it's not something that the general public wants to hear about. And in fact, then the next piece of the message is, and if you do talk about research. Please tell us about the research that actually has an impact on the problems that society is facing right now.
1: Yeah, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. What's a better way to link a focus on research with preparing a workforce or educating in the way that land-grant universities were, were made to?
2: Well, so first of all, I think it needs to be said that having students involved in research, whether that's undergraduate or graduate students, is a part of the teaching process. And they're learning extraordinarily vital skills that will translate very well into the workplace. The problem here is that research ends up being the tail that wags the rest of the dog at the university. And that's the real problem that people are identifying. That as a, for instance, when you're promoting faculty members at a research university like the Ohio State University, you're doing that almost exclusively based on that faculty member's research record, and not as much on whether their teaching is excellent or whether their service to the community is excellent. So the rebalancing of that is really, I think, the primary problem here, is allowing excellence in teaching and, and having that rewarded. And, uh, uh, and similarly, developing excellence in meeting the needs of the communities and also having that count just as much as being a great researcher. I think that's really where the problem
1: is. And how do you think that you can, I guess, reward the, the excellence in teaching? What does that look like to you?
2: Well, here's some happy news. <laughs> so more and more uh, universities are actually developing centers of teaching excellence. And we're now developing metrics that allow us to better understand how to quantify that. See, that's one of the problems. You know, uh, a joke that circulates among universities is that administrators can't read, but they can count. Uh, That's really what's behind this. Uh You you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to assign a dollar value to someone's teaching excellence, you need to be able to quantify that. And that's that's been the rub. But so again, I think the good news is that we've made some strides in that way. That, though, brings up the other side of that particular coin, which is, so how do you count excellence in service to the community? We're lagging in some ways with that, but there are efforts that are underway. uh, And I will give a shout out most specifically to the Engaged Scholar Consortium, which is a consortium of, I think, now almost 65 or 70 universities that are trying to, again, Put some quantification on what excellence and service to the community looks like.
1: I wanted to ask you too. When universities focus on research and they then focus on kind of chasing the brightest students or the quote-unquote best students, you said in another interview that you did promoting this book that that leaves out a different group of students, the working class group of students who are just looking to like get an education and get a job and contribute to the workforce. So how can institutions better balance, the desire to bring in the brightest and those people who are going to like do the amazing work research and all of that with, you know, remaining open and fair to all sectors of the community that they were designed to cater to.
2: Yeah, there's a multi-pronged answer to that. And and the one little piece that we need to throw in there that you did not mention specifically is this pursuit of the national rankings. Mm -hmm. So that's really one of the the dynamic tensions, right, that was identified, which is this pursuit of national rankings wanting to be a top 10 public university. And the way that you get there is through a very small set of metrics, which include having incoming classes of students who have very, very high marks uh, in terms of their grade point average, but also their ACT scores. And so that's one of the difficulties, is that when you're pursuing national rankings and you're only taking those students who have very high ACT scores, just as a for instance, there's a bias there. There's a bias because we know that more affluent students tend to have higher ACT scores. And so that's part of the problem, is when you use a metric like an ACT score, then you're going to cut out A certain segment of the population just because of the way that these tests are biased. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, that uh, we also see is there's a geographical bias as well. That, in other words, students who come from more uh, suburban and to some extent urban areas tend to score higher than students in rural areas. And so it's uh, unsurprising that if you're chasing ACT scores that you're also cutting out large segments of more rural populations as well.
1: How do universities, I guess, in pursuit of a ranking, also make themselves open to these rural students, though? Because the, the land grant universities, like you said, were their mission was to be open to the working class as we know it today. So, how do you shift the focus then? If you, because I feel like there has to be a way to be a nationally ranked university and still also be Achieving your mission to prepare a working class student body.
2: Well, perhaps I'm gonna. <laughs> could uh, be. Wrong. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna quote the uh, individual who wrote the foreword to our book, a uh, man by the name of Peter McGraw, and he took this issue on in the foreword. And basically, at the end of it, said, "National rankings are BS." That's a direct quote mm-hmm. from the foreword. And I think that's part of the issue here is that if you were to ask most people including, I think, people inside of higher ed, they really don't care about the national rankings except in that really small segment of what's our reputation look like when we're trying to compete against other universities for, stu- for incoming students. So if we set aside the, the whole idea about pursuing excellence inside of research, teaching, and service to the community, we see that these national rankings really are not doing very much to help us in that regard. So, I I really do think that we have to wean ourselves off of this. I think that perhaps at one point somewhere, the US News and World Report rankings were important to somebody, but it's become a game. And in fact, that's the problem is that universities now are trying to game the system. So, I I really, I I hate to be so blunt about this, but I really reject the notion that these national rankings have any meaning whatsoever. So, I, I start with that. But now, let's take the the rankings out and let's just talk about the pursuit of excellence in teaching research and engagement. So if we're not worried about rankings, then we're going to start to worry about our own metrics. And there is where I think that we get the biggest bang for our buck. But what we then have to start to do is we have to recognize that a lot of the scholarship opportunities that we are currently giving out, which are mostly merit-based scholarships, have to be recast as need-based scholarships. And I think that's the way to win over the situation that we're in right now, is is to develop more need-based scholarships. That will level the playing field.
1: I'm interested, too, instead of focusing on national rankings and all of this stuff, you said that universities need to become a marketplace for ideas. What does that mean? So what are you you getting at when you say that universities need to become a marketplace of ideas?
2: Well, we first came upon this because the interviews that we conducted for our book coincided with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And many of the presidents that I was interviewing at that time expressed a lot of frustration about the ways that universities were being portrayed by the media. Uh, In other words, they were being overly uh, left-leaning on the political spectrum. Now, I guess that's the most polite way that I could (laughs) say that. So we became curious about the degree to which public perceptions of this kind of bias matched the reality on the ground. And lo and behold, the polling data that we had acquired from the election, thanks to a cartographer at Washington State named Ryan Rolla, indicated that in general, those communities that immediately surrounded college campuses did in fact display a strong tendency to vote Democratic. And interestingly, those campuses that did lean leftward often existed in this, what they might call a bubble within their home county. And that is, in other words, that while the campus was voting Democratic, the remainder of the county that they were in displayed either a more balanced or a more, a more Republican tendencies. Michael Barone from the Washington Examiner talked about this as islands of blue in vast seas of red. So that made us think that there was some uh, reality to this, these perceptions of bias. And so our point here and the point that we make in the book is that. Because our country seems to be at another crossroads or, you know, there's some other terminology that we might use. But the point here is that universities are, I think, in a great position to help people to work together and to hear each other. The alternative to this is to have universities be in yet another place where we see people becoming more alienated from one another. And I think that there's, there's nothing to be gained from this kind of divisiveness. So my point here is that uh, we're not looking to change people's political affiliations, but rather we're, we're calling on land grant and other public universities to remember their heritage as institutions that were designed to meet the most pressing needs of the American people. And here it clearly means mm-hmm. that they have to have a place for dialogue. So what does that look like, right? So what does the marketplace of ideas look like? Well, so we really need to redouble our efforts then to make sure that we're providing what might be considered fair and balanced opportunities for both sides of any argument to be heard, especially because no one holds the upper hand right now in terms of an ethical or moral level, and despite rhetoric coming from the left and coming from the right, and we've said this in the book and I've said this uh, elsewhere, it's appalling. That those who proclaim that there's fake news out there are often as not guilty of contributing to the direct suppression of fact, whether that's scientific or otherwise. And on the other hand, we see that those people who want safe spaces and are demanding trigger warnings, they're really making a mockery of what free speech on campuses is supposed to look like. So we need to stop that. We need to stop the rhetoric on both sides. And again, as we implore people, in other writings that we've done, we have to be public universities, land-grant universities, they have to be the adults in the room. They have to be the people who are saying, all right, stop your squabbling, come together, and let's talk about these issues. That's what I really mean in in terms of the marketplace of ideas, because universities should be the place where the brightest and the dumbest, right, The, the most amazing and the stupidest ideas all get talked about and let people to, to decide at the end of the day what they truly believe in.
1: That's so interesting. And I'm so curious now to see, is that what you think is the, the greatest need of the American people? Is it that kind of a system is what's needed? What is the greatest need of the American people? And how are universities going about achieving meeting those needs?
2: Well, all universities were set up with this idea of enlightenment, with this idea that we're, we, we are places where people go to grow their knowledge. And the whole American democratic experiment, and I'm talking about democratic like democracy, our experiment with democracy is built on the idea that we have engaged and educated citizens. And so, yes... I think that, to me anyway, sitting in in my seat as a professor at a major university, is that the work that I'm doing, first and foremost, should be to help educate the citizenry of the state.
1: What other feedback have you gotten? Like, is that an idea that's shared among a lot of your colleagues? What else are people saying? Is that something that they agree with? or, Or how are they responding to that idea?
2: Well, the I'm not as sure how my colleagues are responding to it as I am about how audiences that I've been talking to about this book are responding to it. Sure. When I say these kinds of things, I I mean, I have people who are like, well, why don't other people who are faculty think this way? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story, that brief story that comes out of the book. One of the things that happened when we were formulating this, there were a group of legislators who found out about this work and invited me down to a state legislative conference. And so I went down to D.C. and I talked about this. I talked about what land grants are, and I talked about the core mission. And I had people coming up. These are state legislators from across the country coming up to me and saying, I want to know how to get my land grant to do what you're talking about. And then, sadly, they said, and can you tell me who our land grant is? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, right? So is, that's awful, right? That, that state legislators did not know who the land grant was in their state. But they clearly were sold on the idea that the land grant portrait that we painted was the one that they wanted to fund.
1: So what did you, what did you say to them? What do you, how do you respond to that?
2: besides buy my book? (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, a part of the response is that I really believe that people need to hold their land grant and other public universities accountable for the kinds of things that they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And that, again, gets us back to leadership, which is why, by the way, we started with the presidents and chancellors. It's why we wanted to talk with them they need to be engaged, and this is part of what the state legislators were talking about uh, with us, which was they need to be engaged with these governors and with these state legislators, and they need to be able to listen to what it is that the people want them to do. Now, that does not mean that we're opening the door to have state legislators tell us what the curriculum is. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that if the people of the state, the citizens, are demanding better excellence in teaching, and demanding better excellence in community engagement, we should be giving it to them.
1: What are some of the trends that you're seeing? What are some of the exciting progress that you see being made? And and where do you still see the need to move the ball forward?
2: Well, all right. So let's start with the bad news, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So the bad news is one of the presidents that I interviewed in fact, did not actually count as one of the 27, and you'll see why in a minute. I was on the phone, and the president said to me, this is going to be a very short discussion. And I apologized, saying, I'm sorry, did we set this up at a bad time? He said, no, no, no. It's just that we don't consider ourselves a land grant. And I'm looking literally, because I do all of these by going to their website and looking, and the banner at the top says, and I won't name who the university was, but you know, proud of our land-grant heritage, something like that. And I said to the president, oh, you don't consider yourself a land-grant, what do you consider yourself? He said to me, we consider ourselves a first-class research university. Now, this was a research project, so I had to bite my tongue and not say what I'm going to say to you now, which is, you can be a land-grant and a great research university. But that wasn't my, my wasn't my place to tell this particular president that. But so the the thing I'm most discouraged about is that here in well this was 2016 so two years ago in in 2016 we still have presidents we have people at the top level who are rejecting the notion that they are in fact a land grant. These are Mr. Lincoln's universities. These this is the people's universities. So to have people at the top who are saying those kinds of things, that's a problem. And what that really means, I think, ultimately, because presidents are hired and fired by board members, is that we need to have board members better educated, especially uh, those board members at land-grant universities. And so here's a sign of the good news, right, is that there is an association, it's the Association of Governing Boards, AGB, which has now started what they call a guardians initiative. And this guardians initiative includes lots of information about how to help board members to actually get a better understanding of the public and land-grant university mission. So there's a great example of where there's a large group of people, a professional organization that's in charge of a large group of people who have a very direct impact on universities and they get it, right? That they, they really see that they've got to move that dialogue forward. So that's, that's amazing. That's a wonderful thing to see. I already gave the shout out to the Engaged Scholar Consortium. We're seeing more and more people who are, uh, are doing great things and, and getting rewarded for it through this professional organization. And then the last thing that I'll mention is that the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities, it's called APLU for short, has recently started something called the Innovation and Economic Prosperity Designation, or IEP designation. And I think maybe six years ago this started, and there were maybe 10 universities that were a part of this. This has scaled up to now I think that there's over 60. There might be closer to 70 universities that have now achieved this designation. And what does this designation mean? It means that they are excellent in the community engagement aspect of what they do. So the very fact that these universities are seeking these kinds of designations makes me happy, makes me uh, hopeful that there is in fact going to be uh, even more effort put into these kinds of things in the future.
1: That's awesome. And it's exciting. I think, I mean, if everybody can maybe get on the same page and <laughs> read your book and understand what's going on. It, it, it could, there could be a, a real change in the system.
2: Well, and that's the hope, right? Unfortunately, what happened in 2012, uh, when there was this major celebration, actually at the University of Vermont, and again, in, in part, a nice nod to the role that the University of Vermont and the, the state at that time through their senator, Justin Morrill, they celebrated the sesquicentennial with a three-day event up there in which, you know, honestly, if you look through the, the literature at the time, said many of the same kinds of things that I'm talking to you about today. I interviewed these presidents and asked specifically, especially for those that were in attendance there, well, what happened? I mean, you had this three-day celebration. You talked about all these great things. And as one president put it, yeah, but then we went home and the day to day experiences made us forget about that. And that's sad. So, you know, maybe it takes this book. Maybe it takes someone like myself. I'm a land grant fanatic, I call myself land grant fierce. Maybe that's what it takes, is it takes more and more people talking about returning to our roots, which is what the Kellogg Commission almost 20 years ago had implored these public and land-grant universities to do. We need to grab those opportunities. We need to become more of what the people want us to be. I think that that would be what would make Abraham Lincoln proud.
0: And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.